everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Forum, a podcast by the Diplomacy Law and Policy Forum. Today, we're going to be talking to Kuba Matak, who is a legal advisor to the ICRC on cyber, and we're going to be talking to him about cyber warfare. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start the conversation and take it a little bit of a step back to talking about whether we're in an era of cyber warfare or not. There's been a lot said, especially in light of the current Russian-Ukraine armed conflict, um, about whether the significance of the cyber attacks in the conflict and whether we're seeing, you know, our first cyber warfare. Um, some people do say that there is a distinct and significant cyber component to the crisis. Um, I was reading a report by the New York Times recently uh, where they're even going so far as to say that the US's cyber support makes them a co-combatant to the conflict. Mm -hmm. I know that as lawyers, when we read co-combatant, we're like, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. um, but others actually maintain that this conflict is inherently conventional, proving that cyber warfare, while it's good for low-level harassment tactics, and we've seen that, you know, the Kremlin's website has been taken down, we've seen some minor hacking, which is mainly just websites being taken down, they can't do what missile soldiers and fight, uh, fighter jets can do. What do you think? Um, are we living in an era of cyber warfare, or are we not there yet? Okay, so that's a big question. Sorry, yeah, very loaded question. No, no, that's absolutely fine. And uh, there are a lot of important aspects in it that uh, I think need, need to be teased out. But uh, I, I think let's start by just putting it in a broader perspective. So why should we even care about these questions? Mm -hmm. And so when you look around the world, you know, some of the trends that you mentioned, uh, you, you, could, you could see it in, in the context of uh, what's happening. So at the ICRC, we look at uh, the trends in armed conflicts. We also classify armed conflicts around the world. At the moment, we are tracking about 100 such armed conflicts. Mm. Now, around one-fifth, 20% of them are international in nature. And if you look at all of the conflicts in the world, about one-third of all states in the world is involved in one way or another. All so right. that's quite a high number, right? Wow, so that's yeah. one trend that we can mm. see. And then another trend that we can see is that depending on, again, which of the studies you look at, there are either dozens or even over 100 states that are developing military cyber capabilities. Mm. So now, if you look at those two things and you put them together, it's clear that the likelihood of military cyber capabilities being used in situations of armed conflict is only growing, right? Because we yeah. have a high number of conflicts, states increasingly developing these capabilities. And so it's not only a likelihood, but several states have already declared that they have used cyber capabilities in ongoing armed conflicts. They, they have said so expressly. So that's one part of the puzzle. Then mm. the other part of the puzzle, and that's why we as, you know, ICRC as a humanitarian organization, why we look at these things is what humanitarian consequences are there? And so it turns out, you know, when you look at cyber operations that have been reported around the world, that there are quite a few such humanitarian, either yeah. actual consequences or potential consequences. So sometimes we talk of them in terms of potential human cost of cyber operations. And we have seen cyber operations against the power grid. We've seen cyber operations against hospitals, particularly yeah. concerning now no, during the, the current pandemic. Yeah. Uh, cyber operations that have affected the water supply in different countries. And so the humanitarian consequences, as I say, actual or potential, are also quite considerable. So th that's uh, that's the landscape that we look at. Now, you ask me, are we, in an, are we living in a cyber war? Well, that depends on the definitions. If by cyber war, you mean the use of cyber operations or the use of these cyber capabilities in situations of armed conflict, 
as means and methods of warfare, then on the basis of you know the, the kind of general expose that I have made, you see that this is indeed already happening. Yeah. But people use cyber warfare in many other uh, sort of contexts and with any and, and with a number of different meanings, which don't comport to this perhaps slightly narrow view or the narrow definition that the ICRC uses. Because for us, you know, we have to bring it within our mandate. Mm. And our mandate is to look at situations of armed conflict and other situations of violence and look at the extent to which international humanitarian law applies to such uses. So that's why when we talk about cyber warfare, right. we talk about cyber operations as they might be used as method and means of warfare. Mm. So the last point to bring it all together, the last point on this is that this type of operations do not occur in a legal vacuum. Right? Yeah. IHL as it exists applies to such uses of cyber operations as you might say, you know, in this era of cyber war. Mm. And it's really interesting when you look at the extent of digitization, mm. that everything that we're doing almost is being moved online. Um, and so it kind of makes sense that states would move to, you know, attack that in an armed conflict. And, and so talking now about the kinds of protections offered, how in particular does IHL protect civilian infrastructure mm. against cyber operations during an armed conflict? And I'm especially interested in this, that we can see when there are kinetic consequences, it's quite easy to say that, oh, IHL applies to this. Mm. But even when you have cyber operations where there are no kinetic consequences, how how then does IHL apply? Okay, so I think here it's important to take a step back and ask ourselves, so what is the aim of IHL in situations of armed mm. conflict? And one of its key aims is to protect the victims of armed conflicts against the dangers and the consequences of those conflicts. Yeah. And so who are the victims of armed conflicts? Well, among other categories, it's civilians. And these civilians, they don't only worry, but also importantly, they worry about their own property, but they also rely on civilian infrastructure, which provides them with a number of essential, civil, a number of essential services to the civilian population. So the question, how does IHL protect them against cyber operations, is very important because mm. this should be one of the aims of yeah. IHL, right? Okay, so then in the next step, there are a number of rules of IHL that we might look at. And because we talk about civilian infrastructure or the property of civilians, so we talk about things, what uh, the key protection here is Article 52, Paragraph 1 of the First Additional Protocol, which prohibits direct attacks against civilian objects. Okay, And so then uh, the, the key question for the extent to which IHL protects such civilian objects against the effects of cyber operations is which of these cyber operations qualify as attacks under mm. IHL. But maybe before we go into that part of uh, the answer, because this is sometimes misunderstood, you know, sometimes people say, oh, so those cyber operations that are not attacks, they, they're a fair game, they're free for all. Right. That's yeah. not right. That's not true. There are certain categories of infrastructure, as you mentioned, that would be protected against hostile cyber operations, no matter whether such a cyber operation qualifies as an attack. Examples medical facilities or okay. the, uh, the, the infrastructure of impartial humanitarian organizations. Mm. There are rules like the rule that mandates the protection and respect of such entities, of medical facilities, of humanitarian organizations, the interpretation of which shows us that any cyber operation, regardless whether you qualify as an attack under IHL or not, if it interferes with the functioning of medical facilities, for example, it would be incompatible with the 
rule that mandates the protection and the respect for such facilities, right? So, okay. so, so some class yeah. of cyber operations, we have to put them aside because they already captured by this rule on special protection of certain parts of the infrastructure. Another right, example, right. you know, objects indispensable to the survival of the mm. civilian population. Okay. But okay, but still, the central question when we talk about the non-kinetic effects is how do we qualify or how do we interpret the notion of attacks? Mm. Because it is only those operations that qualify as attacks that will be prohibited to, you know, to be conducted against any civilian object under the rule that I mentioned, under the prohibition of direct attacks against civilian objects. And so here, this is one of the, the questions that are unsettled in the present state of the law. Uh, there are basically two main schools of thought. One is the narrow interpretation of the notion of attacks, and one is the broad interpretation. Mm. So under the narrow interpretation, which is held by a certain number of uh, states, uh, an operation qualifies as an attack only if it results in injury to persons, to, in death to persons, or in physical damage. Yeah. And then there is the broader view, which holds that it doesn't matter whether damage is physical, but what matters is whether the object in question is still capable of functioning as it did before. Mm. So this is sometimes called the loss of functionality approach. Right. In other yeah. words, a cyber operation that results in the loss of functionality of the target system mm. would also qualify as an attack. Okay. Now, I don't know which of these sounds mm. uh, more intuitive to you. The ICRC's view is the broader view. Okay. And that's for a number of reasons. And, you know, we could be here and discussing them in great detail. But let me just give you one. And that's the object and purpose of these rules. We started with this, didn't we? That the aim of the law is to protect victims of armed conflicts, including mm. civilians. So if this is our aim, if this is the object and purpose of the rules, and if we have two reasonable interpretations, mm. under one of which cyber operations against, let's say, a banking network, you know, an object that's not subject to specific protection, like medical, like right, humanitarian. Right. So under one of them, a cyber operation against the banking network would not be protected under IHL. Mm. Under the other, it would be protected. So if you look at the object and purpose, then the more compelling view is yeah. the one that guarantees more protection to the civilian infrastructure and in doing so to the civilians themselves. Mm. Okay, that's very interesting. Mm. Uh, and I guess the other tag side to that is when states argue on the basis of military necessity that actually they should be allowed to target banking sectors and they're incredibly fundamental to a war effort, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I guess the ICRC would come down hard on the line of victim protection on that, civilian protection. Well, I would hope not. I would hope nobody would make uh, an argument based simply on military necessity that a certain class of uh, cyber operations that might amount to attack would be would be permitted. Mm. Because once a, a given operation qualifies as an attack, that doesn't mean that, you know, we stop the analysis there. Yeah. That only means that then it has to be justified as an operation yeah. against a military objective. Yeah. So it would it would everything would depend on the specific application. But uh, I, I would hope that such broad arguments would not be Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just wondering on the basis of a lot hinges on what then classifies as a civilian object as well. Um, and arguments vary on the extent to which civilian data mm. is then protected in IHL during an armed conflict. So we have the ICRC defining essential civilian data as mm. um, medical data, biometric data, election lists and records, um, tax records, your social security data, companies' clients' files. Um, 
And it's a very expansive definition compared to in the Talon manual. And there they take a very restrictive approach in that they say um, data is not a civilian object because it's too intangible in nature. Mm. Um, so do you think that there's because for me, when I look at it, I'm kind of like, OK, that does con that does include um, as a list it includes everything be like essential for civilian life to continue um, especially when we're looking at medical attacks and we saw that the NHS had its mm. own attack the wanna cry attack um, and you can take an entire system an entire medical system offline and and that has you know a lot of issues for patients um, but but do you which one do you side with I'm guessing you side with the ICRC one but is there an argument to be made to stretch it even broader well, of course, I side with of the course, ICRCB, yeah. <laughs> uh, that shouldn't surprise our listeners. Uh, yeah. But, uh, okay, so to, to answer your question, I think in the first step, we must always ensure that we, are that we find ourselves in a situation of an armed conflict, because it is only in a situation of an armed conflict yeah. that IHL would apply. And so some incidents might happen in peacetime, you know, against medical facilities that you have mentioned, and so IHL would not be the appropriate yeah. framework under yeah. which we would assess whether they are lawful or not under international law. Because today we are focusing on armed conflict, let's imagine that we talk about situations of armed conflict. Then you're right that the Tallinn menu is a, a very important reference point. And so I would say, you know, it's a key reference point for mm. all of us working in the area. And uh, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, an important analysis of how international law applies to cyber operations. I mean, after all, I was very pleased to be involved as one of the reviewers mm. in the process. But we should also say that the Tallinn Manual is not a compilation of state views, because at that time there simply were no state views. So it doesn't right. uh, reflect uh, mm. state views, uh, also because the, the group of experts that prepared it, they were not representatives of states. Mm. And then uh, also sometimes there are views, you know, like the one you mentioned about data, that we find in the non-bold commentary, which, mm. because the Italian manual aims to represent customary rules of international law in the bold text, so yeah. the part that all the experts consider to be binding on states at that time. But it also contains a quite long uh, and detailed and very helpful commentary in non-bold text, which then reflects the discussion among the experts. Right, so, yeah. for example, the view on data that you mentioned, that's very rightly, as you say, it's the majority view mm. among the experts, but it was not held by all. Mm. And there were some experts, which in the manual are described as a minority, who, in whose opinion data qualified as an object, and thus civilian data would qualify as a civilian object. Okay. And I'll say why that matters in just a moment. But so still on, on, on the manual, you can imagine how a differently composed group of experts could come out the other way. Yeah. So yeah. we shouldn't draw too much importance on how exactly the majority-minority was drawn mm. in that process. Now, uh, but the description of the views is very important and that also motivates states because since then a number of states have come out and they have expressed their views. Okay, so let's talk about data. Why, why does it matter? So the same rule that we discussed before, you know, the prohibition of direct attacks against civilian objects is important here, but not because of the word uh, attack, but mm. because of the word object. Mm. So what is an object? Yeah. And now, if data is an object, then all those data sets as those that you have mentioned, you know, like medical, taxation, social security data sets, they would all be protected against cyber operations that might amount to attacks. Okay. So uh, how do we know if uh, certain data qualifies as an object? Again, we have had a number of views that have emerged also on the basis of the discussion in the manual. Mm. And you could classify them, I think, in three main categories. One is what you could call the originalist view. That is the majority view in the Tallinn manual, which is based on 
what could have been meant by the drafters of the first additional protocol when they agreed on the rules there. And so because, uh, you know, at, at that time and also at the time when the commentary on the protocols was drafted, when people talked about objects, they meant something visible and tangible. Those are mm. words from the commentary, from the ICRC commentary on the additional protocol. And so on that basis, some experts infer, ah, so data is not visible, it's not tangible, so thus it would not qualify as an object. Right, yeah. Then on the other side of the spectrum, so from originalist, on the other side you have the evolutive view. Evolutive because it looks at the law as it has evolved. It looks at the law as what it could mean in 2022 when we are interpreting it. And so, you know, before joining the ICRC, I worked as a professor of international law, and I would ask my students sometimes, so, you know, if someone goes and deletes the content of your Instagram account, do you perceive this as a loss of something of value that you have? And so students would say, of course, yeah, Mm. this this is something, maybe it's not tangible in the same way as, you know, this bottle that Mm. you can just hold, but it is something that's uh, quantifiable, it's something that we can ascertain if it exists or not. And so in in that sense, it's more like the, the... tangible objects, yeah. then like intangible notions of civilian morale, loyalty, yeah, those things true. that at the time of drafting were seen as outside of the scope of the word object. Yeah, yeah. Right? So if you look at it from the perspective of how the law is interpreted today, mm. then maybe you get closer to the position that's now taken by a growing number of states, which is that data can qualify as a, data qualifies as an object and thus civilian data would qualify as a civilian object. Mm. And I promised you three views, so I'm going mm. to finish with the third one. Mm. That's the middle view, the so-called hybrid view. For now, it's held by one state, that's France, uh, in, in, in whose opinion it's only content data, civilian content data that are protected as civilian objects, okay. whereas operational data in the sense of code, right, okay. would be outside, or it's, it's not being discussed. And so, uh, under that view, I think you also get to the correct conclusion, which is that data sets, you know, like social security data sets, because those would amount to content data, mm. would still be protected under IHL. So right. from the ICRC's perspective, we haven't actually taken a view on these, uh, on, on any of these specific positions. Okay. But uh, our view is that the it, it's, it's very, uh, you know, again, result-oriented. So... If something was protected, you know, like this piece of paper, mm. if it's protected as a civilian object in its tangible form, then just digitizing this shouldn't yes. mean the loss yeah. of protection. Yeah. So that's the ICRC approach. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting. And yeah. that I understand it so much better now. <laughs> so that was really helpful. I also wanted to talk to you about hacking. Okay. Because that's something that we were seeing so much of uh, recently in mm. conflicts. I think even Armenia, Azerbaijan, they were hacking each other's websites. Russia, Ukraine, uh, they're taking uh, websites offline mm. and uh, they even advertise for an IT army. And I think over 400,000 people have signed up to that digital IT army. Um, and at the same time, I was reading um, this article by Charles Dunlap. Um, not my preferred scholar of choice, but still, he was talking about how um, the US in Iraq is sent out hundreds of propaganda emails. It hacked the accounts of hundreds of Ba'athist officials and soldiers and asked them to leave their posts. Mm. And at the same time, he was saying, this is not a violation of the laws of war. This is a ruse. You're allowed to do this. Um, but 
there was another argument made about that specific case, which was if the emails had been hacked and came from at icrc.org websites, mm. that would have been a violation of the laws of war. Um, so we're seeing a lot of discussion about hacking and, and what that leads to. And I wanted to ask, really, are hackers a legitimate target in cyber warfare? Mm. And when we're looking at the distinctions between civilian and combatant, where do they fit into that? Um, and even what do what do we make of references to those in Ukraine who are forming the cyber army as a kind of digital levee en masse? Okay, so you know, are hackers legitimate targets? Yeah, uh, that's the question. So, are pilots legitimate targets, or right. are drivers legitimate targets? Right. I think yeah. the answer is it depends. No, for mm. all of those categories, because. The term hackers, like the term pilots, like the term drivers, it includes many different people who might be involved in many different activities. Mm. So the first question becomes, again, are we in a situation of an armed conflict? Yeah. If not, then people who are engaged in hacking, and it might consist of malicious activities that have quite grave consequences, would first and foremost be covered by their domestic law. And then uh, in, in the second instance, uh, we would look at potentially depending on questions of attribution, we would look at peacetime international law. But again, today we want to focus on situations of armed conflict. So generally, most hackers would come under the category of civilians. And so, as you know, civilians are protected from attack, so they would not be legitimate target, as you know, implied in the question, unless and for such time as they take direct part mm. in hostilities. So all civilians, including hackers, doesn't matter, uh, would be normally protected from attack. Now, those, uh, uh, those civilians, those hackers who engage in activities that would qualify as direct participation in hostilities, so you know that would have a belligerent nexus, that would mean a meet a certain threshold of harm, and where the causation requirement would be met, then such uh, individuals for that period of time mm. would lose the protection from attack. That's how IHL rules are constru construed or yeah. constructed. And then finally, uh, there is a category of hackers, for example, those who belong to cyber units falling under state armed forces, who would qualify as combatants. Right. Okay. And so if a person mm. qualifies as a combatant by dint of them being part of the armed forces or potentially being a part of a civilian organization that is incorporated by the armed mm. forces, then that has also important consequences under IHL. So, for example, combatants would be entitled to prisoner of war status mm. if captured. They would be entitled to combatant immunity, meaning they would not be eligible to be or liable to be prosecuted right. for acts yeah. amounting to direct participation in hostilities. But at the same time, they are not covered by the protection from attack. Mm. Right. So it, it really depends on the type of activity that individuals would be involved in. And then you also asked about Levianas. So, uh, you know, without going into uh, any details about life conflicts, Levianas is an interesting uh, legal notion under IHL. Uh, it's sometimes it's said that it's an obsolete no notion, but you know what is obsolete in, in international mm. law? I mean, we might have thought that re recognition of belligerency was an obsolete notion, right. but then in the 60s and 70s there were some uh, mm. purported recognitions of belligerency, which might have enlivened the notion again. So Levian Mass uh, has a number of uh, uh, criteria. So it's this idea that on the approach of the enemy the inhabitants of that territory that must not be occupied. So on the approach of enemy, they spontaneously take up arms yeah. to face the enemy. That's the idea of a levy en masse, as captured in Article 4a, paragraph 6 of the Third Geneva Convention. 
And so, you know, we could talk about all of those criteria. So, for example, taking up arms in cyberspace, mm. you, you know, that, yeah. that, that already implies that we would say that engaging in cyber operation is equivalent to taking up arms. But we can put even that aside because I think the key criterion there is the spontaneity. Yes. Right. Yeah. So they spontaneously do so. But it's very hard to orchestrate a cyber campaign mm. without it being yeah. organized. And so if it's not organized, uh, I, I mean, if it is not spontaneous, if it's organized, and certainly if it's organized by the government, then the criterion of spontaneity would not be met. And so we would have to talk about other categories, but not about Levianos. It's so interesting when we're applying all of these to mm. the digital sphere. It, it it changes so much in terms of how we look at their application. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, uh, I think this kind of goes to uh, a big general question, which is we all agree that IHL uh, applies. I think yeah. we are getting to that point that there is really, we can say, a general agreement across the international community. But how exactly it applies is sometimes problematic. And yeah. so some of these questions like, objects, attacks, they really need uh, our concerted effort in arriving at these interpretations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that kind of goes on to my mm. final question in terms of, is the IHL that we have now, in terms of, you know, when you're holding this piece of paper, you're like, if this is mm. protected in real life, it should be protected in the cybersphere as well. It doesn't change that this is held digitally. Mm. And it's, you know, the damage and injury to civilians can be the same. And so IHL should apply there. Mm. So. Is existing IHL adequate and sufficient to apply in cyberspace? Do we just need to do what we're talking about, which is like sit down, figure out how it applies, not mm. whether it applies? But or do you think that it's time, you know, 1949, we drafted these Geneva Conventions, we're still using them now. Warfare has changed so, so much. It's almost unrecognizable. It's almost unrecognizable that you could have attacks in cyberspace, yeah. uh, which could even have kinetic consequences in 1949. We're still facing armies across the battlefield there. Do you think that we need to actually be like, let's put these to the side there for conventional, let's have a new digital Geneva Convention which applies to cyber warfare? Okay. So I think the answer now to that question is it depends. And first of all, it depends on what you mean, how, what's the criterion by which you assess the adequacy or the sufficiency of existing IHL. Mm. And I think we kept coming to it no, during our conversation today. Uh, one such criterion might be, are these rules capable of being interpreted in a sufficiently protective way to address the situations that arise in modern hostilities? Mm. And I think to that, the answer is probably a qualified yes. There might be some borderline issues where it would be problematic. But in general, I think it's capable of such interpretations. Right. But if the criterion mm. of sufficiency is have states actually endorsed these mm. protective interpretations and thus addressed all the potential gaps in protection. And I think there we, it, the answer is it remains to be seen. Mm. But already the divisions on those, some of those topics that we discussed are showing that perhaps some gaps will emerge. But for that, right. we will need more interpretation mm. by states. So I think the good news is that IHL is created and it has been formulated in a broad enough and in a general enough way that's capable of uh, its application to modern situations and to modern means of warfare. Mm. It's not just me saying that, you know, you can look at the International Court of Justice and its yeah. nuclear weapons advisory opinion, yeah. and it says that fundamental principles of IHL apply to all kinds of future, mm. those of the past, those of the present, and those of the future. Yeah. And so the ICJ didn't have cyber operations in its mind. Mm. It was, of course, pronouncing itself on nuclear weapons at that time. But you yeah. can apply the same logic to 
any other modern means and methods of warfare, including cyber capabilities. Mm. So I think IHO is very resilient. You no, know, it's a very resilient body of law that yeah. can be interpreted in these new situations. And so uh, the answer to whether we need a new convention will then depend on the extent to which states endorse such interpretations that would show it that I that that would go with this resilience. Mm. And so luckily we have some good signs, you know, first good recent signs. First recent good sign is that I should maybe say there are several multilateral processes at the United Nations level mm. that are either ongoing or, or that have recently finished. So there is the United Nations group of governmental experts that produced its report in May last year. And so the GGE, the group of mm. governmental experts, they for the first time referred to the applicability of international humanitarian law in the cyber context. So we can see that as, a, as an important step forward that we are getting past the question of whether IHL applies to cyber operations. Yeah. And another thing that the group of governmental experts said was that now we have to look at how and when IHL applies. Right. And so right. these are all these questions. So mm. that's a first good sign that states themselves, because it's governmental experts that participate, and then it's the UN General Assembly that endorses the report. Mm. So states themselves are saying, ah, now it's important to study how and when IHL applies. And then another good sign is that in the, a parallel process, so it's again at the UN level, it's called the Open-Ended Working Group, the OEWG, states have produced uh, uh, another report in March last year, and they encouraged themselves. They said that states should come up with their national views on how international law applies right, yeah. in the cyber context. Mm. And so that it provides them more detail on the how and when, not only yeah. in the IHL context, but in the context of international law as a whole. Mm. So if states actually listen to the encouragement that they give to, to themselves, mm. and we as the ICRC have also called on states to come out with their views, yeah. and if in those views they align themselves with the protective uh, views, the protective mm. interpretation, then the need for new conventions, for new instruments will be lower. If the views coalesce around more conservative interpretations of international law, that might result in significant gaps in protection. And so on that basis, we might need to start thinking, ah, okay, so there's perhaps a potential or even a need for new rules, for new instruments. Yeah, yeah. I think I share your opinions about the Geneva Conventions. For me, uh, even when I'm teaching this, I'm always like, it's just so incredible to me that states came together yeah. after the Second World War and they gave such comprehensive uh, protections under these instruments and we're still using them today. They're still in force. They're still so valuable. Um, at the same time, even when I see uh, the initiatives that you're talking about, the thing that, that just plagues me is that I hope that the Global South is partaking in this and giving their opinions because... We know that in the North is so developed in terms of their legal divisions and, you know, they go into war with like armies of lawyers mm -hmm. and you don't have that same uh, international expertise or speciality that you have in, in the North. And it often shows in times like this where you have very structured, very detailed opinions about every provision and how it would apply in cyberspace and you, you don't see that same rigor in terms of the global south so I, re I hope that that also does come out and which is why we're so happy to have you with us today in the global south talking about <laughs> these issues um so thank you so much for that that was such an interesting discussion